Hello and welcome to Say That Again Slowly, the Cambridge Festival podcast where students at Cambridge University chat with the experts who have contributed to the festival. We try to pair up students with researchers and authors from very different disciplines to bring things back to basics. There are no stupid questions here. My name is Rebecca King. I'm a second year PhD student studying magic on the early modern stage. And today I'll be talking to Ryan Hecker, who is a fifth year theologian at Peterhouse, Cambridge. Ryan is giving a talk at the Cambridge Festival this year called The Logic of Reason Beyond Atheism versus Theism. So I had a chat with him first to ask some very basic questions. Hello, Ryan. Thank you for coming to talk to me today. Um, can you introduce yourself and what you're going to be talking um, about at the festival? Well, my name is Ryan Hecker. I'm a fifth year PhD student in the Faculty of Divinity. My research focuses on theological interpretations of logic in Origin of Alexandria. However, today I'll be speaking about the recent conflicts that have been highly publicized between atheists and theists, and specifically about the rhetoric and logic of these debates, and how it's we as theologians can understand that logic as it informs the practice of theology. Absolutely fascinating. So you mentioned some of these sort of high profile um, debates between theologians uh, and atheists, is that right? Um, can you sort of point out a few that maybe the listeners might have heard of? Is this the kind of thing that, are we talking Richard Dawkins? Are we talking that kind of high profile case? Yes, yeah, so one of the astonishing features about these debates is how tremendously high profile they were. So it's very rare to see intellectual topics debated in a large public stage for a huge public audience. After the 2000s and continuing on to the next decade, we saw a number of very, very high profile and hugely publicized debates between very famous scientists and philosophers. And perhaps the two most imminent intellectuals in this movement are Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett, but they are also frequently publicized with Samuel Harris and with Christopher Hitchens, who was a very mm. sort of talented polemicist. And there's been a number of, us, of other sort of subsidiary debates that have percolated around university campuses since then, as well as a number of social movements that have grown up around this, these debates. Mm. So basically, this is, a, this is a topic that everybody thinks they have an opinion on, I think. Absolutely, um, yes. It's one of the reasons why it's so very exciting, is it touches mm. people's absolute ambitions and mm. aspirations in life. So what is your position in this debate? You're interested in rhetoric. Um, can you talk a bit more about sort of your interests and, and uh, why you think this is so important? I think everyone approaches theology with personal convictions and with the aspiration to speak to them to the wider broader public. But at a certain point, people's professional development and their research, as the research grows, they, they also recognize that it's possible to take a step backwards and to offer a broader public views and and opinions and understanding of those opinions that doesn't explicitly depend on one's own personal beliefs. Yes. So I certainly have my own beliefs, but I don't think it's necessary to sort of communicate them and sort of proselytize them to the audience mm. to open up this question. And so specifically what I'd like to do with this topic is not to sort of try to persuade people, which I don't think is really even um, recommended, because mm. I don't think you can possibly persuade a person to, um, to change their mind on sort of absolute uh, convictions that they have regarding God or the existence of God. Mm. But rather, I want to communicate to people how it's possible to think about it and also what the different ways in which we can think about it in which people have thought about it and how we can um, interrogate those different opinions. What has been missing do you think from the, the public debates and from sort of ordinary people's awareness of them? Well I think there's probably two things that people haven't really quite recognized and one is that the arguments for and against the existence of God are neither indubitable nor defeasible. What I mean by that is that they neither of them none, none of these arguments are going to be so compelling that mm. someone who did not want to believe them would be forced to believe in them. Neither are um, they so weak 
that we can completely ignore them. Mm, right. Um, mm. So in this sense, I think that uh, we shouldn't look upon them as though they're, they're weapons we can use to compel people to believe, but rather we should see them rather as invitations to think about the possibility of belief. And the second thing is I, I believe that most of the debates, um, they, they misconceive of their opponent. So there's a tendency to, to uh, reduce the, the opposite opinion to treat, for instance, atheists as nihilists or to treat Christians or religious believers as dogmatists mm. who are trying to compel people to believe or disbelieve one or the other. And I don't think that's either healthy nor recommended. Um, so what I would recommend is taking a step back from the, you might say that the first order reasons we give either to believe or disbelieve and look at the second order basis for the reason by which we make those arguments. Mm. So what I'm asking people to do is, is look not at the arguments that are made for and against the existence of God, but rather to look at the underlying rhetoric and logic by which both parties make those arguments and ask on what grounds do they have to use logic for the purpose of trying to persuade the opposite party to believe or disbelieve in God. Can you give me an example of uh, maybe a, an argument from the atheist side and a, an argument from the theologian side? Yeah, so one of the most frequently discussed arguments in these debates is the argument from the first cause, or the cosmological argument. This argument has a very long history going back to, to Plato's, Plato's laws and to Aristotle's physics. And it frequently, it also had been developed in the Middle Ages by both Arabic and Latin philosophers. And it has recently been rehabilitated and promoted by William Lane Craig. Um, and one of the most famous debates that you can find on YouTube is between William Lane Craig and Christopher Hitchens. Mm -hmm. But he's also probably the most foremost um, Christian apologist in these atheist versus theist arguments. But um, the the argument it rests on on it can rest either on scientific grounds that is it can appeal to the Big Bang, the discovery of the Big Bang, and the expansion of the physical universe as a kind of physical corollary to the analysis from from effects to causes. But it can't be sufficiently corroborated or demonstrated on that basis. Rather, it has a logical, it has a logical basis on the basis of analyzing consequences to the conditions for which those consequences could come to be. Mm. And this this raises a question about whether that analysis is is valid. So, right. can we in fact analyze the the effects of motion as we observe them in the physical universe to an unmoved mover who would be both unmoved, equally the cause of all motion in the physical universe? Or is that analysis an unwarranted inference? Can it admit, for instance, an infinite um, analysis of, of prior conditions for the consequences of motion? Can it admit for a looping notion mm. of uh, reciprocal analysis? Can it admit for, for instance, alternative universes or cyclical universes and so on? And so in any case, um, the underlying question that, that decides this, this argument is not one that can be settled merely on the basis of scientific observations of the physical world, nor can it be um, decided simply on the basis of a first-order analysis of, of effects and consequences back to their ultimate cause. But rather, we have to analyze even the very form of logic itself by which we make that argument. That's really interesting. And it, and it, it seems to me as though this is, this is partly to do with the kind of historical role of theologians as well as today. It's, it's interesting to hear you talking about um, the role of a theologian um, in the 21st century being as a sort of Maybe provocateur is the wrong word, but a, a kind of um, a prompter of new ways of looking at the same ideas. Would that be a fair way of putting it? I think so, yes. Yeah. So sometimes people wonder whether abstract sciences make any genuine progress. So, for instance, we recognize in engineering, for instance, that mm. people have been able to design steam engines and computers, and it's very evident that new computers are much more sophisticated than old computers. But with theology, it's much more complicated. People often wonder whether we're actually 
declining in terms of our theological aptitude over time. And if you look at some of the great luminaries of theology of the past, it's very easy to make that claim. However, I think that what distinguishes theology, like philosophy in terms of its progress, is the ability to recall and also to critically analyze the the arguments and the opinions that have been made by previous philosophers. Right, sure, yeah. So if we understand it in terms of a, of a gradual historical unfolding of opinions that can be critically analyzed, uh, we can, in the phrase of Anselm, say that we are standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't have to be we don't have to be the tallest or cleverest philosopher. Rather if we step if we stand one hair above the head of the previous philosophers, we can see even farther than they have. In a very one oh one way, what would you say is the distinction in the modern world between a theologian and a philosopher? Oh yes. This is a great question. It's one that I think theologians have to answer in order to distinguish their disciplines. And part of the purpose of my talk is to recommend a progress an intellectual progress from the sort of basic questions of the existence of God and philosophy of religion to a theological question about what is God and how do we think about God. Mm. That is, it's a progression from uh, whether there is a God to what is the God that we wish to believe in. Mm. But essentially, I would say that the distinction between that theology makes is it not only asks the absolute questions of all of the other sciences, this is something that philosophy can do, but also asks it in relation to the historical continuity of belief in cultures mm. over time. So it responds to the continuous tradition of revelation. That is, it's, you might say, a tradition questioning of that philosophers have engaged with, but in response to the answers that have been given by previous thinkers. Mm. So that idea of standing on giants is actually kind of part of what distinguishes theologians from philosophers, perhaps. That mm. philosophers are maybe more interested in slaying the giants of the Absolutely. past and setting themselves up in their place. Yes. Would that yes, be so one, one distinction you could very easily see if you put a theologian and a philosopher in a room together is that philosophers tend to be much more skeptical. Mm. That is, they tend to, as you say, relish in slaying the opinions of the past, <laughs> um, criticizing everything that's come before them. Whereas theologians tend to be much more cautious and also um, eager to sort of galvanize and draw from the the thoughts that have been that have preceded them. Mm. That is, theologians tend to think that they're not inventing, but rather discovering truths that have already been handed down to them. Whereas philosophers tend to think that they they are inventing it by by destroying previous false opinions. Right, I see. And what I suppose that one argument that could be made um, from someone who was on the atheist side would be, well, what about when we've discovered something that has sort of objectively disproved? Is that is that a feature of the tradition of? theology that that every now and again there actually is um, uh, a scientific breakthrough perhaps that has undermined some of the underpinnings of a theological belief does that make sense because with philosophy I feel like you know there are there are some philosophical positions which we now know that they, they were very well um, reasoned at the time but they maybe depended upon uh, you know a, a particular way of looking at physics or the universe um, thinking particularly of astronomy mm. um, that, that then is disproved so it's is that a feature at all of the theological tradition are there moments where despite this kind of tendency to, to stand on the shoulders of giants you do have to every now and again step back from um, a particular theologian or a particular way of looking at the world it happens very often and, and- for the same reasons that happens in philosophy, which mm. is that opinions that people formerly had taken for granted um, can be radically challenged by new discoveries that no one had previously known before. So you mentioned astronomy, the um, Copernican shift from the, the heliocentric or the geocentric model that the Earth was the center of the universe mm. to the heliocentric model upends our notion of the centrality of man in the universe right. as the, the image of God in a way. But at the same time, it can also allow it to be reaffirmed differently or it can be argued for in a way that hadn't um, been possible previously because of the way our vision of the world had been shaped. We can also say, for instance, that um, the discovery of, um, of, of, of um, celestial mechanics and of the, the, the um, gravitational forces 
and action at a distance, electromagnetism, mm. quantum physics, all of these things um, upend our settled understanding of the natural world and also um, challenge our assumptions about how how divine forces could be operative in them. So for instance, if previously people had assumed as for instance, um, Empedocles had described that, that um, magnets operate because of love and the love between opposites. <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> right. well, we, we have a completely different understanding of it now in terms of um, sort of fundamental electromechanical forces mm. at work. Um, and while the, the metaphor might still resonate, we can't we can't simply rest upon that that old assumption. So that doesn't mean that we have to entirely jettison those ideas. Um, in the case of um, the image of God, we can say that, um, as Nicholas Copernicus had argued, that um, the center is is everywhere because it is nowhere simultaneously. And so in a certain sense, everything becomes the center, everything becomes the image of divinity. Mm. And I think that means then that there's always a kind of continual skeptical challenge to old theological assumptions that can be critically revised in light of new discoveries. Right, yeah, okay. And so I guess um, for an individual person, um, maybe someone who's not particularly um, interested in, maybe maybe not an ivory tower type, um, what is the practical advantage, do you think, of, of engaging with theology for, for an ordinary person? Um, I think people sort of understand philosophy to be something that clever people do over there and maybe doesn't have enormous practical day-to-day significance, but theology in particular, touching upon morality and all of these things that people do care about, I think, um, maybe I'm being mean to philosophy here, but uh, but yeah, it seems to me as though there's a, there's a link but with theology and kind of ordinary people's understanding of the world that um, I wondered if you could talk a bit more about that. Um, that wasn't really a question, but you know what I'm guessing I think at. I understand. <laughs> yeah, so part of the challenge, as you mentioned, with all Ivy Tower studies is that you have to find a way to relate it to the world mm-hmm. and also make it useful for other people. Um, and this is especially challenging for the most general investigations of philosophy and theology. That is, once you've abstracted and looked to the most general ideas, it's very difficult then to sort of proceed back down to yeah. show how it could be useful. As it were, you can't you can't sort of make bread in the philosophy factory. So the challenge is then to show to persuade people that this is of importance to their lives. I think it's easier with theology in a way, insofar as there's a sense in which everyone's always already a theologian mm. and everyone's already asking questions of their place and purpose in the universe. And because of that, we're people are asking questions together and also looking to ways of answering those questions that elicit a general conversation that percolates mm. throughout society. So one of the exciting things about the New Atheist debates, and I was thinking of this on the way over here, why it is that, that Christians and religious people love the debate so much, it provides both parties a platform for mm. voicing their disagreements and making arguments in favor of their own beliefs, as well as attempting to persuade a public audience. So there's been a huge literature that's been prompted by this in response to the New Atheists by Christian theologians and other religious groups, um, mm. arguing, for instance, I think they, there's one called The Atheist Delusion by by David Whitley Hart, and there's many, many others. I looked through a few of them before I prepared for her my presentation. The exciting thing about it is that people are very curious about these questions because they're curious about themselves, and they're curious about um, what they can hope for and, and what their purpose is in the world and, mm. and who they are. And so in answering to these questions, we also give people a new orientation for acting upon the world. And we see this, this action in so many different social movements in the world. Religious charities are still the most populous mm. in the world. Um, religious peace movements and, and um, progressive movements operate throughout the world. And there's arguably a sense in which most of our politics, and this is, I think, the great concern of the New Atheists, is motivated by underlying religious beliefs and aspirations. Uh, we couldn't talk about, for instance, liberty, equality, justice, mm or truth without some resonance to the way in which these terms have been used by religious thinkers in the past. 
So I wondered whether in theology today, um, especially as universities become a bit more international, is, is there more of a merging of theologies from around the world, from different cultures, you know, Sikh, Hindu theologies? It, I wondered if you could talk, talk a bit more about that, what it's like. This is a sort of general question about, about what it's like to be a theologian at mm. the moment and how, how much you find yourself standing alongside or in opposition to theologians of different faiths. That's a huge question. It's one that's increasingly relevant today. I remember recently that Oxford had changed their syllabus for for people studying theology, such that it had to include other religious traditions, mm. not just Christianity. And well, historically, obviously, um, Christianity has uh, probably since since um, the Roman era been the sort of um, most prevalent religion in the United Kingdom. But with recent waves of immigration and with sort of global connections now across the world, um, where where you can instantly encounter people of other religious mm. opinions or none. And um, argue, there might in the future be a majority, um, or Christianity might be a minority in England in the future. So we can no longer simply assume that that it will hold its, its preeminence in the public sphere. So the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge in particular has been recruiting many staff who, who teach in other religious traditions outside mm. of Christianity. And this raises an interesting question about what unites the, the faculty itself, what, 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 what a theologian is if they come from so many different religious traditions. Mm. Um, it's a similar question that you might find in philosophy, but I think that the challenge here is that if the way that theologians speak to their discipline is from a tradition and from a tradition of revelation, and those revelatory texts are mutually exclusive and contradictory, then it seems like they can't all be spoken up together. So that is, there's a seem, there seems to be an oscillation between the particularity of these tradition revelations and the response that we give to them on the one hand, and an abstract genus mm. of divinity or, or theology as yeah. such, that doesn't, that, doesn't, um, that doesn't have a way of capturing the particular differences or even the, the understanding of those differences between those different groups. Mm. I hope this could be something that could be fruitful. That is, I mm. hope that it would elicit um, a great interest in interreligious dialogue and um, a learning from others as a way of learning from ourselves. Mm. And also that um, there are so many sort of interesting contacts that are mutually, that have been mutually fruitful in the past that I hope we can draw from them in the future. A very good example of this is how Arabic scholasticism was used as the basis for the commentary tradition on Aristotle mm. that was received in Western Latin scholasticism. And how, um, if you look, for instance, you mentioned Thomas Aquinas, if you read Thomas Aquinas on Aristotle, he will cite Avicenna and Averroes mm. before he cites most Christian authors. And I think the possibility of this is, is, is possible because of the fact that we're all asking questions in a similar way. We're all relying, we're all looking back to uh, the possibility of philosophical investigation as a preliminary and as a stepping starting point for investigating the specific claims of our revealed traditions. Interesting, really interesting. <clears throat> I wonder whether that the, the answer to that question changes where, whether or not there's an atheist in the room. <laughs> if there's an atheist in the room, perhaps there's yes. some sort of sense of unity and, 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 uh, and a kind of shared uh, endeavour. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I want to get back to this. This is part of the purpose of my talk, is to show mm. how theology is radically open to the possibility of atheism. Mm. And I want to argue more, moreover that theology is more open to atheism than, than what most philosophers of religion allow for. And the reason for this is, um, although most philosophy of religion sort of suspends belief either for or against the sense of God, and on that basis you might assume sort of virtually allows for atheism, they don't actually um, carry the weight of belief that would um, that would open up to the possibility of its radical subversion. Mm. So essentially what I, what I want to suggest with my, with my lecture today is that the only way we can really um, proceed we can, the only way we can really begin to think about atheism is if we have a very potent, weighty, and developed conception of theism. That is only by, by thinking of God as an idea that we can come to know that we can also make an argument for how God is either unknowable or not, not present mm. as 
something that could come to be known. Right, interesting, fascinating, like know thine enemy kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of a situation. It's, it's not a surprise, for instance, that the great atheists of the past have all either been um, ex-theists or stridently opposed to theists. So, for instance, um, Ludwig Andreas Feuerbach, Friedrich Nietzsche, Alexander Kojev, they've all been um, imbued with and re- in response to the radical challenge of theism and attempted to develop a strident philosophy that, that elides and criticizes it. So it's, I think, typically only in the, the context of the most well-developed opinions that we can have a forceful critique. I can see it be a, being a criticism people might make of theology, that you're always starting with a book that says a thing, and therefore um, there's always going to be some lines of argument and ideas that you can't, you, you, you can't, you couldn't ever have your mind changed on. Does, mm. is, that, is that a fair criticism? Well, I think in practice, we often find that people's minds tend not to be changed, sadly. However, <laughs> there are very astonishing occasions in which people have radical conversions. Um, probably the most famous example on Christianity is Paul, who mm. formerly had persecuted Christianity, but then on the road to Damascus had a vision and yeah. became the most ardent proselytizer. But you seem to be saying that that, has, that cannot come through someone insisting upon the, you, you, know, you believing in something, which perhaps is a point of difference between you and a lot of... Um, people who get who who give theologians or, or or religious people in general a bad a bad rap. Yes, yeah. So in um, unscientific postscripts, Soren Kierkegaard had argued that um, to try to argue someone into belief in God is no better than to torture them into belief in God. Absolutely. Um, you never really force them to believe it. They have to want to believe it themselves. Yeah. So I see all of these arguments in the way that Anselm of Canterbury had presented the ontological argument as a call to prayer and conversion. Mm. That is, I see it as an attempt to try to think about what God would be like and whether we want to believe in that God right. and whether we, we could really adore and dance before that God. I want to argue that that Christian theology is radically open not only to the most innovative interpretations of its own tradition, but also um, must, for that very reason, draw from the discoveries of the natural sciences, all of the humanities. That is, I, I believe in the tradition of Alexandrian theology, in the tradition of Ambrose and Augustine, that in order to be a persuasive speaker of theology today, we must um, we must exemplify the greatest virtues of all of the other arts and sciences. Mm. That is, we must be able to um, enjoy the same kind of liberty by which, for instance, literary critics are open to an innumerable number of interpretations. But we also have to be as precise and rigorous as mathematical logicians, as natural scientists. We have to be credible to the foremost intellectuals of our time, and also the great artists and spiritual leaders of our time. Mm. And for that very reason, we can't close ourselves off to these possibilities. We have to draw from them, and we have to invite them into our own disciplines. So I'd recommend that um, for people who are hesitant about about religious belief because they feel that it's closed themselves, I'd recommend looking at um, the great sort of struggles that people have undergone in order to discover this for themselves, um, both amongst um, the sort of early followers of these religious movements, but also look at the the wide diversity of opinions that have been uh, floated for all sorts of ideas within these traditions, how people have variously argued for them and come to the most innovative interpretations. If I was to try to sell the benefits of a, a theological mindset then, uh, as opposed to an atheist mindset, um, I think today I'm probably somewhere between atheist and agnostic. But um, if I was to, if you were to try to persuade me of what's, why are you <laughs> in a happier place? No, I'm not just talking morally and kind of emotionally, but intellectually. It sounds as though you're saying that if you, if, if I was to consider the theological approach, I would be able to think more broadly and in a more complex way and draw together 
ideas from across a kind of more interdisciplinary range of studies. Would that be fair to say? Is that the main selling point? (laughs) Yes, yes. So for undergraduates or people who are interested in deciding what to pursue at the collegiate level, I think that theology is a very, very broad ranging and diverse and exciting approach to anything and everything under the sun, but also that continually draws back to the absolute questions and tries to find ways of answering these questions in a continuous dialogue Mm. with the great thinkers of the past. So I I believe it's in fact more sort of wide ranging, creative and innovative than most of the other humanities, but especially philosophy, which I think tends to become doctrinaire rigid and and, uh, myopic about its own tradition. That's that's fascinating because I think most people would expect it to be the other way around. Um, and I'm, I'm sure I've got friends who are philosophers who'd be who'd probably try and make the opposite claim that it's them that has the freedom and the openness, and it's the theologians who have the the doctrine and the um, and the the single mindedness. So it'd be I almost wish I, I had a, someone who knows more about philosophy to come in and see what they would say. If I was to, as someone who again has no background in theology as an academic subject, although I have a personal family history with belief and religion. Um, you know who are the who are the big names for you? I mean, we talked a bit about how theology typically has been grounded in the European tradition and maybe the classical tradition. Um, if if someone was com- going to come completely new to theology, who who are the big names that you think throughout all of history are the most important thinkers to just to to go and have a look at to find out about? this subject. I tend to think that the best way to approach the development of any idea that is as it grows from its original seed to its ultimate flowering is to look at the pivotal figures in its formation over time and beginning with the the first speakers to that tradition. So I suppose I'm rather conservative in this regard but I would recommend that if you want to study Christianity you should first start by reading the Bible. (laughs) And then um, you should read, I I believe you should read Paul, you should read Philo, you should read um, Irenaeus, Tertullian, the Alexandrian Church Fathers, Clement and Origin of Alexandria, Gregory of Nyssa, Maximus the Confessor, Augustine of Hippo, Pseudo-Dionysius. Mm. There's a golden tradition of really brilliant thinkers that have grown up that are conversant with philosophical traditions of their time and also point to really incredible ideas that have been formative, not just in theology, but also in other humanities, in architecture and art, mm. um, as well as in, in philosophy up to this present day. And I should also point to how there's something like a repetition of the axial age. Um, So Carl Jaspers is famous for hypothesizing that there was a point in time at which all great religious traditions emerged, what Mm. he called the axial age, the time of Moses, the time of Buddha, the time of Socrates. But I believe that in the medieval era, we find that there's a second point at which there's a kind of synthesis of revelation and reason. And this occurs in Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. In Judaism with Maimonides, in Islam with Avicenna, and in Christianity, most of all, with Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas. And the reason why these touchstones are really important is because these become the subsequent authorities mm. that we look back upon to say how it was that that the great questions of, of philosophy, of Aristotelian philosophy in particular, and of the skeptical challenge that was raised by it, as well as in conversation with other religious traditions, have been able to be answered in a systematic, coherent, and encyclopedic way that provided the groundwork for the subsequent flourishing of that religious tradition. Mm, okay, brilliant. So a chronological approach is a good idea since it's a tradition that 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 depends upon what came before and builds upon what came before. Yeah. Very true, but I just want to add one last thing to that, which is that I believe that even this genealogical narrative, even this chronology, can itself be critically reinterpreted. Mm. That is, we can, as it were, challenge the assumption that there's either a continual progress or alternatively, that there's a decline. And we can right. say that that what people have formally said was the progress either of, of reason or 
unreason has itself can itself be challenged to discover what was reasonable in what people formerly found to be incredible. And I wanted to ask um, off the back of that. So, so I think um, so in literature, for example, I did a lot of work um, as an undergrad on a collection of poems, really fantastic political satires, but they were written in a notebook, in manuscript form, they were never printed by a woman writer from the 17th century. Now, if she'd been a man and if she'd written exactly the same poems and had published them, they might have had an influence on the, you know, the the, the poetic and intellectual development of her age. She is... There's an argument for saying, you know, she she's less important, even though her poetry is brilliant, just because she was excluded from the tradition. And I wondered about that, about voices that have been excluded from the tradition that you describe. If we were to find, for example, a really fascinating book, it wouldn't even need to be by a woman, but by somebody who, through the circumstances of their birth, just didn't ever get their stuff seen or heard, uh, didn't get the platform that perhaps it, that, you know, that they they would have merited, perhaps because of prejudice, perhaps because of just bad luck let's say we were to find a fantastic philosopher or theologian from you know um, the fifth century what would be the the correct response to them in terms of uh, reincorporating them back into the tradition but we have this trouble this struggle in literature where we we think to ourselves all right brilliant poet but how significant is she? How, you know, from now on, she can start to have an impact. I, c- I can be inspired by her as a young writer writing today, but but certainly she did not have any kind of significant reach in her own time period. So yeah, I wondered what you thought about that. I think that, that the elators are always called to address this challenge. And most of all today, when religious voices and with the possibility of speaking credibly about theology is innerly contested in the public sphere. That is, we have to fight a kind of uphill battle mm. against the assumption of incredulity that no one could take theology seriously today. And this means that we have to try to discover how it was not only that theology had developed and provided its own its own doctrines and answers to these great questions, but also why it was that people came to disbelieve in them or came to find them incredible. And I think this is especially the case you mentioned with marginalized voices, people who had written great works and had done incredible things, but for whom they hadn't achieved the recognition they perhaps deserved in their own time. That is, it's a rec- it's, it calls us to ask not only what they had accomplished, but why their accomplishment was not recognized mm-hmm. and how it is that that, that that lack of recognition can be can be repaired by rediscovering their merit and also by, by presenting them anew in ways that they hadn't been able mm-hmm. to be heard in the past. So from today, we can start to integrate those voices mm-hmm. back into the canon and see what we can do with them. Exactly. Perhaps. We can criticise not only the author themselves, if we wish, but also the reception of their author. Mm. That is, we can say the, the, the reception has, has failed to mm. respond to and to, to appreciate the significance of an author that subsequently can be rehabilitated and represented mm. for new purposes. Are there any authors you can think of that you really, perhaps just, you know, I can think of some um, poets and writers um, from all sorts of places, you know, I think John Clare is underrated. He was a peasant poet. People called him, and I think Wordsworth gets all the, all the you know, <laughs> Wordsworth gets all the tourist money. But John Clare was better, a better writer. Um, yeah, are there anyone is there anyone like that from the from theology that you think is just an undiscovered gem and who you would like to see reintegrated into the tradition? Well, not undiscovered gem. The author who I wrote my dissertation on, Origin mm. of Alexandria, um, has historically been very much unappreciated, but his star is rising again. I should say. And the foremost reason for this was that there were a series of controversies about his work after, during and after his death 
that for many centuries afterwards led to enormous polemics between Christian theologians, um, focusing on issues about, for instance, the pre-existence of the soul, or the restoration of all things in Christ, or about the unity of all things in God. And sadly, um, at a synod in Alexandria in 400 AD, and then subsequently at the Second Council of Constantinople in in 537 AD, he was condemned by the bishops of the Christian church. Mm. And this condemnation had a disastrous effect on his reception. Right. <laughs> the reason for this is that although he was arguably the founder of most genres of Christian theology, that is in biblical interpretation, apologetic, systematic theology, his condemnation led to the loss of what is expected to be something like 80% of his works Oof. and almost the entire loss of his original Greek corpus. Most of his Greek works now survive in Latin or even in Ethiopian and Armenian. Mm. And as a consequence, um, his works were not read in their original language and not appreciated by Latin scholastics for right. the most part. And it was only in the Renaissance that he was re rediscovered and reintroduced into the Western canon. And he's had a very difficult legacy since then because of the history of these condemnations. So although he's he was regarded by Jerome and Ambrose and others as the greatest of the anti-Nicene church fathers and arguably the most brilliant Christian theologian until the Council of Nicaea, he nonetheless has sort of fallen under a cloud of suspicion that has lasted mm. until this day. And it's quite difficult to rehabilitate him in Orthodox Christian theological circles, even though very many of the greatest Christian theologians today, including Rowan Williams, David Bentley Hart, and even the former Pope Benedict, were great admirers of Origin of Alexandria. Is there, is there still today uh, any kind of tension between um, theologians and uh, church fathers, church authorities, um, organized religion and theology. I, I tend to think that they, they would like to imagine that they could be mutually complementary and speak in a kind of chorus of voices for the same truth. But in the history of theology and philosophy, there has often been a kind of mutual suspicion and, and antagonism between them. Mm. And uh, probably three examples come to mind. One is the, the condemnation of Socrates by the authorities of Athens, one of which was uh, the argument that he was teaching his students not to believe in the gods of Athens, um, by which they meant that he was teaching them to believe in the idea of the good mm. or um, the, 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 the single god of reason rather than in the god of Athena and so on. Um, the second was um, when, when An with Abelard, um, who himself began teaching at the University of Paris as soon as the, the, um, the university had begun in the Middle Ages, was condemned by the church. And um, when Abelard was condemned by Bernard of Clairvaux and had to publicly burn his books. This, I think, is one of the signature examples of the growing conflict between the the secular university philosopher mm. and the religious authorities. Was Abelard the one that had the affair? Yes. And then had Abelard an unfortunate... Yes, very unfortunate. <laughs> and he, afterwards he wrote, um, he, he, well, he wrote memoirs and he wrote logical works, but um, he, um, his, his, his letters to Heloise have um, been a sort of famous work of medieval love literature. Mm, I think I've, I haven't read them, but I think I remember learning about them. <laughs> Although he said that um, the burning of his book on Christian doctrine was even worse than his unfortunate incident. <laughs> yeah, if anybody doesn't know what um, his unfortunate accident was, you can go and uh, Google that and we won't describe it to you. I will spare you that. The last one that I wanted to mention was um, the German philosopher Gottlob Fichte was condemned for atheism at the University of Jena and had to resign his post on that on those grounds. And he vigorously argued that he was not an atheist, but nonetheless, um, he was held to be complicit in atheism because of his radical egoism and the belief that he was conjuring the absolute from purely um, subjective volition. Is, is egoism sort of focusing on the self and the significance of the self? Is that what that means? Yes, from um, um, it comes from the, um, the Greek word for I. So um, it's a bit complicated, but um, um, Fichte describes how um, 
the 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 ich, the I in German is self-positing. That is, he posits the conditions for its experience of the world. So basically, yes, there has been a tradition of um, people of, of a tension between um, the church established religion and what's going on in universities. Uh, is, would that be fair to say? A fair summary. There has been some some degree of tension sometimes. Yes, a frequent tension, but also hopefully a frequent collaboration. Mm. And I would like to say that that um, religious communities ought to be more welcoming and encouraging of intellectuals and the research of academic theologians. And I hope that academic theologians also would be more attentive to the aspirations and needs of religious communities. I believe that that um, both can only really flourish with the other. That is, um, we can only ever sort of grow in our heart if we can also think with our mind. Mm. My final question then is, how is logic related to theology? This is going to be the topic of my talk today, and I'm very excited to present it to a public audience for the first time. I would argue that that atheists and theists have radically different ideas about the ultimate ground and purpose of logic in our lives. And the foremost reason for this is that while a theist, a person who believes in God, would believe that God created not only the visible world, but also the invisible ideas, which include the ideas of mathematics and logic, an atheist would have no such conviction. And this has certain implications for what we think are the normative grounds and aspirations of the use of logic. That is, why do we use logic? Why do we believe it's true? For a theist, they would believe that there's a kind of um, inbuilt harmony between the possibility of developing models of mathematical logic or of inference, consequence, and the preservation of valid arguments as true, and the way that the world really works. That mm. is, we'd be able to discover through the use of logic and reason how things are in their truth. I think it's more challenging for an atheist because they have to account for not only the hypothetical grounds by which we construct these arguments and by which we deploy them, but also the attempt to show how the use of these arguments gradually capture something that may be true in the world. And I think that, um, that, that in a way, theology can provide a more robust and rich interpretation of the developments of logic and mathematics that have been developed in the university by secular philosophers. And I hope that is something that my audience will take away from my talk today. Wonderful. Well, I'll definitely be listening to it. Um, I can't come this afternoon, but I'm going to listen to it when it's uh, put online. I think it will be recorded and put online. That's right. So um, I'll, I'll see if we can include a link um, in the podcast description. If um, if we're not able to, I think if you Google it or look it up on YouTube, you should be able to find the talk. Um, thank you so much, Ryan, for chatting with me today. It's been really interesting. You're very welcome. It was very enjoyable. Oh, thank you so much. Make sure to follow the Cambridge Festival on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and YouTube and go to the Say That Again Slowly podcast on SoundCloud for more fascinating interviews with experts on time travel, aliens, counter speech, groundbreaking medicine and more. Thanks for listening.